1: Welcome to The Lundown, a podcast analysing breaking news in architecture, housing and planning produced by Open City, which is a charity dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. From now on, by signing up as an Open City friend from £5 a month, you can get early, ad-free access to The Lundown and free tickets to live recordings throughout the year. Plus, you get all the other benefits of being an Open City friend too, including early booking for the Open House Festival in September and access to an exclusive programme of year-round in-person events. Events. also by donating your supporting independent journalism keeping the london free and accessible for others and directly helping open City's wider educational work particularly with children and young people from underrepresented communities to sign up as an open city friend and get early ad free access to the london click the link in the show notes or visit opencity.org.uk friends thank you on with the show Visionary plans to deliver 1.2 million homes within walking distance of rural train stations. Britain's addiction to the wrecking ball, costing us 50,000 buildings a year. A new culture war erupts over 15-minute cities, and the City of London forces office skyscrapers to dim their lights at night. My name is Finn Harper. I'm an architecture critic, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Deneen Rowe. Danine is a project manager at the Town and Country Planning Association. Welcome to the show.
0: Hello, good morning. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us. So a new debate has erupted over visionary plans to deliver 1.2 million much needed homes within walking distance of rural train stations in England. This master plan is the brainchild of former Lundown guest Russell Curtis, director of the architecture firm RCKA, who appeared on the... BBC Politics Southeast last weekend to present his concept. Intended to tackle the housing crisis which has left England with 1.4 million homes fewer than is needed for its population and economy size, the proposal would deliver thousands of new sustainable homes that don't rely on car ownership and use up just 0.3% of England's rural area. Focusing on the Southeast region, Curtis proposes using 84 sites in Kent, Sussex and Surrey to build 175 5,000 homes without encroaching onto valuable, precious landscapes. If adopted, the proposal would mark a fundamental rethink of green belt policies which stretch back decades and have historically prevented development within walking distance of many rural train stations. 0.3% of land sounds like a fairly small proportion of England's rural land, but some people say it's too much. Here's what the people of Mepham, where Curtis proposes almost doubling the village with 6,000 new homes, told the BBC. I'm really not keen. We moved from London to get away from this. I know it's very much not in my backyard, but I'm not keen on it. The roads chock a block anyway. This is a main road.
0: The chock a block anyway at the moment. Six thousand more houses means an awful lot more cars and people. Not good. Well, makes me really mad. Right, really mad. So I know we need to build houses, but they're just cramming them in all over the place. Taking over three or four fields and then planting a brand new town. Um, I've seen that, how that works in Cambridgeshire, and it really doesn't work. It's a mecca for drug dens. it's a mecca for teenage not, being at, not having anything going on.
1: So, Dineen, what's this all about? Why are people in rural areas so vehemently opposed to new homes in walking distance of train stations? Isn't that the most efficient way to solve the housing crisis without incentivising more car use?
0: It does sound that way, doesn't it? I think a lot of people don't like change, Um, especially when it comes to new housing, I mean, if you sort of walk up to people and say, hi, how do you feel about 100,000 new houses on your doorstep? I think even the most sort of open-minded, welcoming person would sort of be taken Whoa. aback.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's completely understandable. Um. I think also we hear so much about housing developments not going well mm-hmm. and not having enough public engagement and the infrastructure around them not being um, thought out enough. And that immediately sort of gets people's backs up. So, and that's the same whether it's in the home counties, so I think this was in Mepham. Um, But also in London, you know, people sort of fear large scale change when it comes to housing.
1: New census data has revealed a whopping 3.6 million young adults are still living with their parents. That's a 15% increase in the past 10 years. Quite significant. Uh, And meanwhile, average house prices have doubled in 20 years. Uh, And that's despite a government commitment to build 300,000 homes a year. But that rate has never been reached, right? We've, we've not built that many homes a year for ages. It's a situation that uh, Russell Curtis has described as a demographic time bomb. And so the question I have is, you know, at what point does this growing need for radical change become simply unstoppable, regardless of what people in Mepham might think?
0: I think we're there. I mean, since Right to Buy in the 80s, which of course got a lot of people in the housing ladder keep us or sort of financially benefiting from the value of their properties now, we've never been able to follow that up by building the accessible financially, accessible properties that people need. Um, So we're very much now at a point where we need to build. Um, But what is missing behind that is a very regimented and thought-out strategic plan from government. Mm. Um, And I think that's Mm. what people are crying out for. And that, I think, is sort of a a cross-party thing. I think there are people from many parties who know that we have a housing crisis but we are missing a well thought up plan that looks at not just the actual houses but also at the sort of environmental benefits and, and asks and needs um, as well as transport infrastructure and social infrastructure in these areas and yeah I think I think we've been there for a while hopefully we'll, we'll get some change but at this point who knows
1: yeah, I think you're absolutely right to kind of refocus this conversation on sort of what is the long term strategy, whether it's Curtis's proposals or a, 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 ver- a different proposal. Um, so some some organisations, some very influential organisations, such as the Campaign for the Protection of Rural England, oppose building on the Green Belt as a blanket policy and instead call for more homes only on groundfield land, which is essentially just any land that's had something built on it in the past. Maybe the problem with this is that many brownfield sites actually are a very long way from employment centres, which means if you were to build something on them, people who moved there would have to drive. It have you know the only way to, to get to their jobs potentially. So is this a case of of ideology coming before pragmatism?
0: I think so. It's really it's really interesting when you speak to people. If you just mention Greenbelt, I think people again have an immediate reaction to it and they sort of think of all Greenbelt as sort of the land you see at the beginning of The Sound of Music.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. When
0: Julie Andrews is spinning around. It's the Shire
1: in yeah. the Lord of the Rings. Um, when
0: in <laughs> when in reality there is a lot of Greenbelt land that just doesn't look like that, that isn't farmland and that could probably be better used as housing but again it needs something thought through you know well developed that brings in sort of new communities as well as supporting the ones that are already there
1: so I mean it's interesting you mentioned sort of new communities because I'm interested in um, why you think anti-development sentiments are so strong across all of England but in in particular in the countryside. Uh, We heard one person in the clip just now saying that they left London to get away from, quote, this sort of thing. And, you know, it's very hard for me not to notice that all the people that the BBC interviewed in that clip were white people. So how do we tell the difference between a reasonable concern about a bad development that maybe doesn't provide enough infrastructure versus just straight up prejudice about a new community?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, So... I'm a project manager at the uh, TCPA. I also manage a planning aid for London. Um, And a lot of the calls that come through, the people are concerned about new uh, developments in their area. You you do sort of learn the intricacies that come through that. So I think there are a few different groups. I think one of the people um, that they interviewed sort of mentioned uh, NIMBY. Um, I think a lot of people get put under that, but there are definitely sort of set groups. So there are people who have built communities and areas and have come from disadvantaged communities and where my family is Jamaican uh, and a lot of people who came over especially in the wind rush went where the communities were mm. and successive generations were able to keep those communities going and buy new properties but we're now at a point where that's not possible for a lot of people so when new developments come in people th- those communities immediately think are we are we actually going to be able to buy these properties? Yeah. Who's going to move into them? Are these communities going to disperse? Um, so I think that's one concern. I think there are some um, people, an interesting point, I think someone brought up, and uh, you mentioned it, we, we left, this is why we left London, because we want this. It's really common. Lots of people, they get older, they have children, they decide they don't want to be in the hustle and bustle of London anymore. So they move out for green pastures. Mm. Um, and it's sort of a, Hidden thing where, you know, we're just living fine here, don't bother us. You don't need to change anything here, it's fine. Um, but that's just not realistic. Uh, so, yeah, I think there are people who think about communities, how they're going to change, people who just sort of like things the way that they are. Um, I think there are sort of some people where it, it might touch on. Um, uh, <laughs> race or or you know socio economic um attitudes that uh, I don't really want to think about too much mm. um definitely, but I think there is there is something that is so inherently British about conserving mm. people's home and and well this is my this is my area you know i don't oh I know I sort of like things the way they are, but we do have to sometimes pull people along with change,
1: yeah our next story is is all about tension between change and conservation in a sense. The UK's addiction to the wrecking ball is trashing cultural heritage, polluting the environment and crushing communities. Last week, I wrote an article for The Guardian focusing on Britain's demolition obsession. In London alone, over 160 council and housing association estates have been demolished since 1997, resulting in an estimated loss of around 55,000 homes and the displacement of an estimated 131,000 people. The destruction of social housing and the displacement of these communities is, I argued, a travesty when there are outstanding refurbishment alternatives available that would be more ecological and more compassionate. For example, Grand Park in Bordeaux was upgraded without any residents being evicted and is of such high architectural quality that its designers Lacton Vassal went on to win the Pritzker Prize. Meanwhile, however, in South London, as reported by the AJ just recently, Southwark Council has scrapped a planned refurbishment of Bermondsey's iconic Maydew House Tower in favour of demolition. In fact, a further 100 London housing estates are deemed at risk of demolition, including projects of irreplaceable heritage value, such as Central Hill in Lambeth, one of the few substantial 20th century housing estates designed by a female architect, Rosemary Sternstert. It seems that low carbon refurbishment opportunities that have proved themselves overseas are being ignored at the expense of people and planet. In my view, to get a grip on our emissions and to protect our communities, Britain must end its addiction to demolition. The obliteration of 50,000 British buildings a year is disgraceful, indicative of a culture of myopic greed and unthinking vandalism that is wiping out the heritage of our cities, tearing apart neighbourhoods and accelerated climate breakdown. But that's what I think. (laughs) <laughs> Denise, maybe you have a different perspective on all of and all of this. I'd, I'd be interested in your your your, your view as, um, uh, you know, why why in your opinion is Britain so addicted to the wrecking ball? Are there justifiable reasons for demolishing rather than recycling or upgrading those fifty thousand buildings?
0: My gosh, you really knew how to get to me by choosing Lambeth and Southwark, didn't you? <laughs> oh, my home borough. So. I think it would take someone with a very uh, particular um, mindset to rejoice at the idea of demolition, especially such sort of beautiful old buildings that feel like a part of the landscape. Like the the Elsbury estate, I think, is a really good example of that. I mean, I grew up I grew up seeing that building all the time, mm. um, and it not being there now in the area, sort of looking quite different, is something that sort of hits me personally, and whole load of other people in the area who live there, but communities there, who work there. It's a really emotive issue. Something that I found really interesting when I was looking at this was how much, even with something like this, the lack of funding in, in local government Affects it. So even with Meiju House, on the outside of it, you look at it and you think how how could this have possibly happened? Up until I think maybe 2021, 20, the the architects were on board with sort of changing and working with what was already there. Most residents, I'm sure, would have been okay with that. But again, one of the big things about it was cost. So the refurb cost in twenty nineteen was forty two point one million. From twenty nineteen to then twenty twenty one, that rose to sixty nine point six million just to do the refurb. That didn't include the refit costs. So sadly, I think really sadly it became a financial cost where it actually worked out cheaper to demolish the costs. Um, I think there's also another point that, again, I think a lot of people, especially outside of the policy world, might not know, is that the VAT, I think you don't get, charged VAT for the demolition and rebuild.
1: Yeah, exactly. Building anything from scratch is exempt from all VAT but refurbishing or upgrading is not exempt from VAT. So it effectively costs 20% more to refurbish something than to demolish something.
0: Exactly, which... which it's just maddening.
1: The costs is a, a really interesting issue and I know that some people have kind of questioned some of the costs that have yeah. been published and what you know how, how kind of trustworthy they are. Certainly if we look at comparable economies overseas, they're a very cost effective refurbishment options and you know it can't just be Britain where refurbishment is so expensive no but I mean like zooming in on on Southwark for example you you know you talked about the Aylesbury estate which is a um, an estate that could clearly be upgraded a lot of the buildings there rather than uh, demolished and yet the local authority is seems to be pushing ahead with demolition plans for now despite having declared a climate emergency and this yes. is the bit that I'm sort of interested in it's like even if it is more expensive to refurbish something if that's lower impact on the environment and you acknowledge that we're living in a climate emergency isn't that worth the extra cost?
0: In an ideal world ab- absolutely I think especially with councils like Southwark and Lambeth and Camden who have come up with really exciting and just flat out interesting um, ideas on how to tackle climate change in an ideal world that strategy would underline everything that you do and you would just be able to deliver everything with that at the forefront but the successive Cuts, funding cuts to local governments that persist even now mean that many people who are in those positions now are having to think finance money first. What are the cheaper options? What are the quicker options? Whether that is partnering with a developer that maybe people in the community might not want, or what we're talking about now with demolishing properties, it, it means that people are having to make decisions finance rather than people first and most people wouldn't rejoice in having to make decisions that way but if we don't fund local governments then that is what is going to keep on happening I think a lot of the other um, countries who are able to work in sort of other ways have a lot more support for local government and and also trust in them making more decisions and we don't have that here
1: So, one of the ways that you support local government uh, is you provide free advice to Londoners on town planning and development so I'm kind of interested in your sort of sense of how we achieve this long-term change because it sounds like we sort of agree that all of this demolition is probably a bad thing ultimately and uh, you know we spoke earlier about uh, how uh, English people like to kind of conserve things if possible so what could be done to kind of wean us off this mania for the wrecking ball is it just about providing more money to local authorities or are there other kind of tactics that we we should be using to move away from demolition-led development?
0: Yeah absolutely so yes funding underlines things but I think it's also about giving communities in the area much more of a voice um, rather than the sort of statutory I think it's three weeks at the moment that communities really have a chance to make a voice and um, I don't know about you but there are many many people who just don't have mm. the time three weeks is not that long to make a decision about something yeah. a building that's probably going to be in your area long long after you've passed so communities getting involved as early as possible so we're talking that local plan level neighborhood plan level as early as possible and being able to help to make decisions about what those areas are going to look like what are these new housing developments going to look like is integral I think to making things like this happen because for a lot of people, it's not just an anti-wanting new builds in the area, it's that by the time people find out about it, it's so late that it feels like these things are all happening to them, even though they're being told by people who work for them how these things are going to happen. I don't think you can have enough community engagement and I don't think anyone across the sector, whether it's public or private, would say that they're doing it perfectly, Yeah, but community engagement and and co-design alongside funding I think are really really important just Bring people that, along with you
1: just unpack that three three weeks thing what, what's that um, deadline
0: uh so with most sort of new developments in areas I think by the time the uh, council has signed off on a new development and usually sort of have a council meeting. It's usually sort of one council meeting where residents are given a chance to share to share their thoughts. So they have a three minutes to speak, which is no time at all. So that as well as probably there'll be like one sort of showroom about the development that's there for a few weeks. That's usually it. Wow. And then after that, lots of people sort of sign petitions or start things up online, which is great, but so much of the decisions have already been made by then Mm -hmm. that you're fighting an almost unsurmountable battle i don't really know who who that works for
1: yeah yeah our next story starts with an audio clip i'm sorry but in a free country you ought to be able to get in a car and drive wherever you like but that freedom is starting to feel like a distant memory These deeply illiberal, un-British 15-minute cities are beyond the pale. They're hurting communities, they're hurting small businesses, and they've got to go. It took me less than 15 minutes to realise they're a terrible idea. That was the comedian and GB News frontman Mark Dolan, concluding an impassioned diatribe against the concept of 15-minute cities, which he lampoons as un-British and illiberal. Intended to ensure that all a person's basic needs are accessible within walking or cycling distance from their home, 15-minute cities have become a sort of lightning rod for a rather strange and heated debate. In recent weeks, such is the furore that last week Tory MP Nick Fletcher stood up in Parliament to demand a debate on the, quote, international socialist concept, end quote, of 15-minute cities, claiming traffic control measures will wreck economic damage and, quote, cost us our personal freedom, end quote. Such concerns have since been echoed in the Daily Mail in an article titled, quote, The secret war on drivers, how bike racks, flower beds and parklet seating areas are replacing parking spaces across the UK as councils quietly make life harder for motorists, end quote. Very long headline. These are just some examples of a growing backlash against green initiatives, which seem to be pivoting from a heated but at least evidence-based debate to one of pure culture warring. Uh, So Forbes recently ran an article about how the 15 minute city concept was appearing on far right conspiracy theory websites with wild claims such as, quote, power mad politicians had voted to, quote, lock residents into zones to save the planet from global warming, confining residents to their own neighborhoods, end quote. Mm. So, Danine, what is this all about? Why is there suddenly so much outrage about 15-minute cities? A concept that, until recently, was kind of really only talked about in urban planning and built environment circles and basically just means making it easier to get to the shops.
0: Yeah, it's got all of the buzzwords, hasn't it? Culture war, freedom, restriction, socialism. It's, it's it's really made to rile people up. Mark has done a good job at doing that there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me really dig into it we're really not that far away from a period of time with lockdown where people saw a massive curtail of their personal freedoms. Mm. For the benefit of, of the people, definitely. But people had to deal with that for so long and are sort of now coming out of it that I think as soon as people mention any sort of restriction or change or movement, It's a really easy way to get people's backs up.
1: Yeah. Because it's sort of tapping into all of that frustration that's still sort of sitting with us from uh, the COVID lockdowns.
0: Exactly. Um, And you mentioned that it's only really spoken about in urban planning and built environment professional circles, which I think is also another big part of the problem. I can easily go into work and just throw out the words, 15 minute cities, you know, local plan, design codes, and people get it. Once I leave that building, yeah. quite literally. If I start spouting those words, people would think, what on earth is she speaking about? And yeah, that's part of the problem. We need to get out of those circles and explain to people, it's not a big radical social idea. It's actually saying, maybe we should design places so that you don't have to get into a car and travel 20 minutes to go to the pharmacy maybe the everyday things that you want should be in reach you know the things that people in fancy areas boast to other people about having maybe they don't need to be in fancy areas maybe we can make that happen for you as well
1: yeah it's very strict because like dolan and all these kind of you know republicans in america sort of saying that oh you know 15 minute city is, is bad for business bad for like local shops and stuff but Surely footfall down the high street is really the lifeblood of any local economy and that it is precisely the shift towards like car based urbanism and people driving out of town to big retail parks that has killed so many local businesses that used to be on, on the high street. So where in your opinion does does the truth lie? Could could kind of more local footfall and cycling be good for business or, or bad?
0: No, no. I am absolutely on board with and the TCPA as well, on board with the idea of fifteen minute cities and people being able to cycle to local businesses and walk to local businesses. That footfall is really important. Most people, when you're out and about and you're going shopping, a lot of the thing that sort of gets you to go into shops isn't being able to drive there. It's just strolling along. Oh, I'll pop into that shop. I'll check that out. I might pick this up. One of the I think really biggest and most popular campaigns um, for Noor, a shop in Brixton, it wasn't people coming from like Staines and arguing that we need to keep this shop because I want to drive here. Mm -hmm. No, it was people in the local area, people who had from various different backgrounds who had gone to that shop and supported it for years and years and years and wanted it to stay there. It's local people who keep those things going. And even in London, where a lot of the time we live side by side by different communities, and, yeah, there's that whole thing about, you know, we're not all Londoners, aren't sort of lovey-dovey and we sort of ignore people. Um, But you do sort of build relationships with local people in the shops. And even one of my local corner shops... The guy who owns it, OK, yeah, we don't know each other's sort of interior lives and families, but he he knows me well enough to know when I had left secondary school, sort of roughly what I was doing for work, and knows me well enough to check in with how my parents are doing. Cars don't help that to happen. Yeah. Locality helps that to happen.
1: Okay, so like we're, we're clearly hearing that a lot of this kind of anti-15-minute city rhetoric is based on lies. lies. Essentially. This, yeah. this is not a, 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 a true or accurate argument that um, some of these commentators are making. So given that, given that we're in a, a kind of culture war rather than a, an evidence-based debate, what is the right way to respond? Does it work to fight a culture war with kind of facts and figures or do we need to find a different tactic given that this this conversation has kind of fallen into this realms where people kind of (laughs) make up the evidence that uh, they want to hear
0: i think the thing that conspiracy groups and far-right groups uh, i hate to phrase it this way but do well at is buzzwords and playing on people's fears and using sort of quote-unquote big words that people don't understand that can pick people up because then that way you don't really have to read into it. If you recognise the big words that they're talking about, you can just go along with that. I think trying to match that is not going to work. Mm. The way to go about it is to actually break it down so it's the same with like, traffic restrictions. You don't say to people, this is going to ban you from getting your car. No, you tell people the benefits that are going to come from this. So again, with 50-minute cities, having local amenities, that's what it means, actually. Being able to... Go to your your doctor and then your pharmacy within fifty minutes. Being able to yeah. wake up in the morning and say, "Oh, we don't have anything for dinner," yeah. and go to a local shop within fifteen minutes. I think most most people, probably everyone, would say that that's a benefit. And explain, break it down, and explain it to people like that. And keep on emphasizing that. I think is the best way to go.
1: Nice stuff in your neighbourhood.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Imagine, imagine how radical and socialist that would be. Oh, my God,
1: it's a conspiracy. Our final story is that the City of London Corporation has proposed a new scheme to reduce visual pollution and energy wastage by dimming the lights of skyscrapers in the square mile after certain times at night. Uh, This story was broken in the Financial Times, which reported on details of the new initiative found within a planning committee document on the corporation's website. Under the proposal, property owners within London's historic financial hub will be asked to switch off unnecessary building lights with curfews based on each area's function. So residential and heritage areas will have a 10pm curfew, cultural and tourist areas will have a sort of 11pm curfew, curfew and commercial retail and transport hubs will have a midnight curfew. The proposal is intended to help the city reach its target of achieving carbon net zero for the square mile by 2040 and to reduce energy wastage and light pollution caused by unnecessary use of lights in office buildings. All external illumination, other than that required for safety or crime prevention, would be turned off, while internal lights would be dimmed significantly unless needed by workers overnight. The proposals will require future property developers to agree to the terms during the planning process, and for existing buildings, owners will be asked to sign up to a voluntary charter. So, you know, what do you make of this? Is this sort of common sense approach to light pollution? Should it be the norm for all commercial districts, not just in the City of London?
0: This is quite interesting, actually. Do you know that, or I think maybe the city of London might be the only sort of district, because it doesn't call itself a borough, does it? In London, that has an actual lighting strategy. I don't believe the other boroughs do. Wow. Yeah, that that in and of itself is quite interesting. And I think anything that pushes developers to sort of change the way that they work and, and to think about, linking to what we were speaking about earlier, thinking about the uh, environmental cost of their development, I think it's a good idea. Given that the City of London is the only borough with an actual full lighting strategy, absolutely other boroughs should be thinking about doing that. Lighting is a is a whole sort of big huge topic. Um and especially with a lot of the high profile cases that we've got going on at the moment. I think the the mindset is usually all light, good.
1: Yeah. Not a problem. Yeah.
0: Actually, when we look into it, that's not the case. And it's one way of many, many ways to look at tackling climate change. So I think thinking about that across the city is good.
1: Yeah, it is. You know, when I've I've travelled to other cities like Copenhagen or, or Tokyo, even sort of, you know, big, prosperous, developed cities... I've often noticed that lighting is generally dimmer at night than in Britain where it does feel like we're a bit kind of trigger happy on turning up the brightness, which is odd because, you know, I remember learning about light pollution as a, as a little kid. Uh, why do you think it has taken so long for this initiative to, to come forward at, at the City of London? Uh, has anyone been benefiting from this delay?
0: Um, I can't think of anyone who would and Although, Energy companies. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, and why? Oh my goodness, do they need a boost? Um. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it's interesting that you just said you learned about it as a child. I didn't. Really? Okay. Um, I didn't learn about it until sort of relatively recently. A research paper that my um, previous employer, Centre for London, did on um that very issue. I think when with housing I and mean, with climate change and environmental change, we definitely have the big issues to focus on. Car use, exhaust fumes, and so on. Lighting is one part of a very, very big issue, right? So it might not be at the top of people's heads, but it is important. Yeah. And I think anything that looks at again a strategic, thought out way to do that across the city, go for it.
1: Absolutely. We've just got time for a few. Cultural highlights coming up in the the couple of weeks ahead, so one thing that I really wanted to mention is a debate that open city's putting on it's part of our accelerate program, which supports young people from underrepresented communities to get a, a you know start a career in architecture or planning or design and alongside that program, we've run a series of debates at rich mix, kind of exploring the issues that make it uh, harder for everybody to equally access built environment careers so that we have a debate coming out called the rules of the game and the kind of idea here is that um a lot of people particularly from working class communities maybe go into architecture and feel very alienated by a lot of kind of unspoken or kind of cryptic rules that yeah. might be to do with fashion or or language do or you it... have
0: the glasses do you have the really cool yeah yeah, glasses? yeah
1: exactly cool gla- cool glasses certain kinds of shoes yeah. and sometimes these things are sort of minor and cosmetic but they they can add up to a real feeling of being out of your depth I remember I lived with an architect and they had gone to Cambridge University and I, I hadn't and at one point I came home and they'd taken down all of my art and like moved it around or put it into the cupboard and I think that really kind of came from a sense of like some sort of taste clash like yeah. my taste was not kind of good enough for this that my my housemates taste because they they'd come from a, a different background and so I'm I'm really interested by this debate I don't, I don't know if does that sort of resonate with you this kind of idea of kind of hidden codes that you fall foul of
0: yeah it does so I have been working in sort of built environment policy for I think six years now and before that though I was politically aware I was not a part of the world at all and it was a really steep learning curve there was sort of a lot of shorthands that I, that I needed to learn, even though I've lived in London, um, so I've had quite, quote-unquote, metropolitan life um, <laughs> for my entire life, and I've lived quite essentially as well. But there were definitely different tips and tricks that I needed to learn. And luckily, I was able, well, I worked with people who would sort of help me to pick up. And also, I developed the confidence to say, oh, that's just an Oxford thing.
1: So th- this this debate, is a, it's a Rich Mix on the Thursday of the uh, 23rd of February, 7pm, and uh, I think standard tickets are £12 and concessions are only £8. It'd be really great to see some people there. It's an amazing panel, I'd say, really kind of extraordinary group of people who'll be talking about this issue. A couple of other things in, in culture. The BBC's commissioned drama called Grenfell, uh, which is going to kind of... Well, they say it's going to explore the series of events that led up to the fire. And I'd be wrong to say I'm looking forward to this. I'm really not. It sounds like it's going to be really challenging. And I hope that they do it with the kind of the justice and the, the kind of sensitivity that that. Requires, But part of me is glad that this is happening, that there is going to be a major drama exploring the kind of run up to, to the Grandfell Fire. And I guess my hope would be that it pays enough attention to the decisions that went into the refurbishment and all the different contractors and designers that played their role in that rather than just focusing on the the night of the fire itself
0: yeah exactly okay. issues like grenfell and other sort of systemic failures it's not just one person it's not just one night it's systemic failures and policy failures that weren't put in place so i hope that the show will highlight those issues so that maybe that will push some people to make changes that so it doesn't happen again
1: denine it's been a, a great pleasure to have you on the show i hope you come again um where can our listeners sort of keep track of your Uh, Your writing, your talking, where can they follow your work? Yeah, of course.
0: So, you can always go to uh, TCPA's website, Planning... And it's also planningaidforlondon.org because we are always looking for volunteers that can help us to ease the gap between policies and community engagement. Um, You can find me on Twitter at shortsaki88. (laughs) Um, I know it's been that for 14 years now and I can't bear to change it. Um, And yeah, planning aid for London everywhere on all the socials, please.
1: Fantastic. ShortSaki88. I'll be following you today. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City in association with the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and a ton of other benefits, including early booking for the Open House Festival while supporting independent journalism, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring, Merlin Fulcher, Rachel Capel, Ella Jessel, and me, Phineas Harper. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible, and equitable.